Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. I'll be addressing that topic off and on in the calls to confession throughout this season. Uh, Luke 4 is our call to confession this morning. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, man shall, live by bread, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Moses and Elijah and Jesus all fasted for 40 days in service of God. The church developed the practice of Lent, 40 days before Easter, not counting Sundays, to focus on the earthly ministry of Jesus his suffering, his denial, his state of humiliation for us. And over the years, Lent became corrupted with some simplistic and self-righteous practices, and the Reformers mostly rejected this season because of these corruptions. But we do also see some wisdom in focusing on the life of Christ in the calendar year. We focus on his incarnation at Christmas, his ministry and self-denial during Lent, his suffering and death at Good Friday, his resurrection on Easter. The key is to stay focused on Jesus Christ more than on our own works of self-denial in this time. We look to what he did centrally. And then we ask ourselves too, are we taking up our cross? Are we denying ourselves? Are we following Jesus as he calls us to do? sermon text today is Nehemiah chapter 7. We uh, read a few of the beginning verses of that chapter last week, so we're going to start at verse 4. And as you turn there, maybe you've looked at it already. Yes, I'm going to read the whole chapter. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 7, beginning at verse 4. Hear God's infallible word. Now the city was large and spacious. But the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return, and found written in it, These are the people of the province who came back from the captivity, of those who had been carried away whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Bana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 652. The sons of Pahath Moab, of the sons of Yeshua and Joab, 
2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Binui, 648. The sons of Bibai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Adin, 645. The sons of Atur of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashum, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Harif, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netopha, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerim, Chafira, and Biroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. The sons of Sanaa, 3,930. The priests, the sons of Jediah of the house of Yeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Yeshua, of Kadmiel, and of the sons of Hodeva, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Telman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The Nethanim, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padon, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Selmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Rea, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Basai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephishesim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Bazith, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tama, the sons of Neziah, and the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Yaala, the sons of Darkan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokhareth, of Zebaim, and the sons of Ammon. All the Nethanim and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. And these were the ones who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Kerub, Adon, and Immer. But they could not identify their father's house nor their lineage, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. And of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Kaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found, 
Therefore they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. Altogether, the whole assembly was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 men and women singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and donkeys 6,720. And some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. So, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing to us your word. We pray that you would bless us, that you would guide us to be enlightened in our hearts and in our lives, to understand this word and to have the will to carry it out. Lord, whatever you reveal to us is precious truth. And here we have precious truth. Let us glean from it all that we can. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, like I said in the email, how on earth do you do a sermon out of this, right? Uh, the theme you'll see in the outline is that God knows each of his people by name, and each is precious to him. That's uh, one direction I'll be taking. Um, but let's just walk through this verse by verse, starting at verse 4. We see in verse 4 the, that there's a problem. And this problem has been there all along. But Nehemiah, I remember last time, delegated the management of the city to others. And now he's going to address this problem. Verse 4, the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses not rebuilt. So what you have here is the wall has been completed and the people uh, are eager to get back to their homes. Uh, again, uh, uh, thought experiments are always helpful in this and one I thought up out of my own head uh, this week was something like this. Imagine that we went into exile. Imagine, for instance, China conquers America and we're carried off to China for a hundred years. And then our children, our grandchildren, are allowed to return to Michigan. But we have to go through Washington, D.C., right? And we build up Washington, D.C. again. And we build the Capitol and the White House, and everybody's doing that. And then you get to a certain point where, okay, things are pretty decent, and people are really itching to get back home. You want to get back to Howell and Ann Arbor and Heartland. You, want, you don't want to stay in D.C., you want to get home. That's the, been the situation here. These, uh, the people here listed want to get back home. So they're going to be going to their, uh, their cities that we've just listed there. And that's going to mean a big problem in Jerusalem because there's not going to be enough people. So that's the problem. Nehemiah's solution is actually ahead a few chapters. If you uh, flip forward to chapter 11 of Nehemiah, you'll see the solution. Uh, it actually doesn't present itself until then, what he's after. 
So chapter 11, verse 1, notice this. The leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. And nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. So in other words, Nehemiah wants to put a list together from which he can take 10% of the people and say, okay, you're assigned to live in Jerusalem for a certain amount of time. You can't go home yet. This 10% needs to stay in Jerusalem to, to man the city, to defend the gates, and so on, to, to build the houses. We've built the wall, but who's going to be part of the ongoing project to build up Zion long term? Who can we count on to, to contribute? And so Nehemiah decides we need to put together a list of everyone who has returned, everyone from which that 10% we can assign and take turns. That's, that's the solution to the problem. That's what's going on here. Now, verse 5 is really fascinating, and I want to take a moment to look at that. My God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. Notice, first of all, as an aside, that that's uh, rather modern evangelical language, actually, that people use, right? God put it in my heart to do X, Y, or Z. Sometimes we kind of make fun of that. Like, you can just kind of feel what you want to do and then put God language into it. Uh, that sometimes does happen. But the language itself is, is genuinely biblical. Uh, my God put it into my heart to, to do this. And, and, so he, and what he wants to do is to register all the people by genealogy. Uh, so he gathers everybody to do this. But then notice the second half of the verse. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return. Now one thing you may not know, but this list that we read is almost identical to the one in Ezra 2. It's the same list. And it's from several years back. So uh, Nehemiah wants to do this thing and all of a sudden he discovers that Ezra did it already 20 years before him, or whatever the time was. 10 years, I don't know the, the time frame. So that's fascinating, and I want to focus on that a minute. Uh, I think that tells us that we need a sense of history, right? The questions that we have today, the things that we want to do today to, to build for the Lord, to be faithful to the Lord, those are questions that people 40 years ago had too. And 400 years ago. And 4,000 years ago. The, the questions we have, how, how can I live faithfully in this world, uh, just generally, Christians have been asking that for millennia. The smartphone and the internet hasn't changed that. <laughs> We're still seeking to be faithful to God. And so, just as Bill prayed in the prayer, we thank God for Christian mentors, some of whom are from centuries ago. Those can be our mentors as well. It's very important. 400 years ago, Christians pursuing Reformation in Geneva or in Scotland, they were asking the same questions we do. How can we raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? And Christian schools sprang up. And we're pursuing Christian education much in the same way today. So I just wanted to mention that in passing here. Nehemiah sets out to do this, what he thought was a new thing, put this list together. But then he finds Ezra has already done it. That often we just need to read history and it'll answer questions we didn't even know we had about the faith, about how to live for the Lord. 
So uh, read your history, read Christian biography. It's very useful in this way. So there's the problem, there's the solution. Uh, And Nehemiah then goes on to quote basically this list. Verse 6 is important. It gives the description of what's going on. This is the the list of those who came back with Zerubbabel. I believe that's uh, described in Ezra 5 as well. He was the first governor. And now uh, I'm going to jump ahead really fast. Uh, Verses 8 through 38, if you're looking at it, gives you a list of, uh, of people by town. Okay, so every name you see there is a place, it's a city like Howell or Heartland, Parosh, Shephatiah, Ara. This is the population of cities that are left. That's, that takes us through verse uh, through 38. And then you have a different category at 39, that's the priests, the Levites, and verse 46, the Nethanim, if you've got a different translation, it may say temple servants. Uh, and the, those are all not listed by town because they don't own land. This is the priests, the Levites, the temple servants. They don't own land. They're going to be staying in Jerusalem, uh, tending the temple. I thought, found this fascinating that this list is put together this way. The, the laity by their cities and the priests and the Levites uh, separately. Uh, it made me think of God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. When God makes his covenant promise to Abraham, he promises him two basic things. One, he promises him land, and two, he promises him descendants as the stars, right? Land and descendants. And I think there's a hint at that here in Nehemiah 7. With all these cities listed, it's the promise of land. And with, with the, um, the genealogies of the priests, you have descendants, right? There's those two things going on. The priesthood, the whole priesthood is, is a picture of Jesus coming, who is the ultimate descendant of Abraham, right? So you, you have uh, that promise uh, portrayed here of land and descendants. Today we talk about it even. Um, there's kind of a movement called localism today, uh, and uh, they'll often speak of the need that we have for a people and a place, Right? And that's a, that's a pale echo of God's promise to Abraham. God promises us a people and a place. He's given us Jesus Christ, and he's preparing rooms for us in his father's house. So there you have the priests, the Levites, the temple servants in, uh, up through verse 60. Uh, also interesting on those temple servants, it's, um, students of the Bible have assumed, have figured out, that those Nethanim, uh, you can trace back all the way to Joshua, I think it's chapter 9. If you remember in Joshua 9, uh, the Gibeonites deceive Joshua, right? Uh, they say that they've come from a long way when they were really just next door. And so Joshua swears not to hurt them. And then they find out they're right next door and God told us to wipe them out. What do we do now? Well, the solution there is to make them um, woodcutters and water carriers, And that group of people, those Gibeonites, Canaanites, notice, wind up being servants in the temple, woodcutters and water carriers in the temple. And that carries on uh, straight through Solomon, David and Solomon, and now they're coming back here in Nehemiah. It's fascinating. Uh, They're not ethnic Israelites. 
And sometimes uh, people get the wrong idea about the Old Testament, especially towards the end of Nehemiah. We'll talk about it later. Uh, But ethnic purity is not ever a goal that God gave his people in Scripture. Right here you have this long list of former Canaanites who have married in, of course, to Israelites. Uh, And that's what's going on. They are uh, listed at great length. And you get to the end, verse 60, and you find out there's actually only 392 of them. (laughs) But a lot of ink is spilled listing every one of them because they're precious to God too. So there you have the priests, the Levites, the temple servants. Verse 61 to 64, you have an emphasis on imperfect records, right? You can't serve as a priest if you don't have the records, if you, if, you, if you don't have your genealogy, they're, they're not allowed to eat the priestly food. They can't serve in the temple. Uh, we'll have to wait to get some divine revelation from God if, if you're allowed back in. That's fascinating. Uh, that's mostly verse 64. The list is in the first three verses before that. So you were an Israelite just by hailing from a certain town. But to be a priest, priests, remember, were judges as well. To be a priest, you needed the right paperwork. You needed to have your genealogy in order. And I think there's a translation to that to today. Uh, Leaders in the state, leaders in the church, they need to be certified by their peers to be leaders. Take a political example. There's the Republican guy who was recently elected. George Santos, I think, is his name. You can't just make up a resume and then be elected. There's a problem there that they're working on fixing, right? Or your doctor's diploma. That better not be fake, right? There's certain certifications you want to have. In the church realm, it's the same. Church elders and pastors, they need to be approved by their fellow elders. But there's all kinds of imperfections in all that. We, we can't do that perfectly. I've, I've been talking, interacting with a pastor in, uh, here in Michigan who planted a church seven years ago, and it's doing really well, a Baptist church, but he's never been ordained. <laughs> so now he's talking about joining the CREC, and we're talking about, well, how do we do the ordination process? You find odd situations like that. There's other ones too, right? There are many people listed on church membership rolls who are not real Christians. Or the other way around, there are many true Christians who aren't on a membership list anywhere, right? The the records are imperfect. That doesn't mean we give up on membership lists. Nehemiah found great value in it. So did Ezra before him. And Moses does the same in the book of Numbers. So there's this list, but the records are imperfect. And we'll come back to that in in a moment. First, what I'd like to do is uh, take you on a tour of the Bible, looking at God's lists. Looking at God's list. I'm not going to read all the lists in the Bible. That's not what I mean. Uh, But let's, um, if you have a Bible, let's um, turn back to Exodus 32. The first time in the Bible that we see this kind of thing, we uh, just read a moment ago when Moses intercedes for Israel. What does he say? Exodus 32, 32. If you will forgive their sin, and then he just pauses and says, but if not... I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And I think that's the first time in the Bible that we get this idea of God having a book that he's written with names in it, names that, of people that God favors. And, and Moses is asking to be erased from that book 
instead of erasing all of Israel, right? This is right after the golden calf. Moses is saying, damn me, not, not your people, or in place of your people, right? It's a prefiguring of Jesus' intercession for his people. So there you have the, the idea there of a book that God has written that your name can be erased from. So that's stop one in our tour. I've got about seven more here. Let's turn to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, 28. And this is an imprecatory psalm. And here's just the one verse of it. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Same idea there, right? There's this book of, of the living, or another way to say it is book of life, right? And, and God has this list of names. Try Isaiah 4, verse 2. Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. That's almost a direct prophecy fulfilled in Nehemiah's day, what we're looking at today. Everybody who comes back, they're going to be recorded. They're going to be holy, right? Now, I think that's a partial fulfillment because not every person listed in Nehemiah 7 was perfectly holy, but they are recorded, and you have a, a, a glance forward there. So there again, you have that book. Uh, Daniel chapter 12. Don't get to Daniel as often as we should. Daniel 12, uh, we see this as well. If I could page there. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. <laughs> Here it is again. What is this book? Well, the, uh, how does the saying go about the Old and the New Testament? I always try to do this by memory, and I always mess it up. The, the new is in the old contained, and the old is in the new, I messed it up. Anyway, you know what I'm getting at, right? The, the New Testament reveals further the Old Testament, right? The New Testament is contained in the old, but it's more uh, deeply fulfilled in the new. So what does the New Testament say about this book? Well, try Jesus first. Luke 20, no, 10. Luke 10, verse 20. And again, I'm simply taking you on a tour through uh, this idea of a list of God's people. Luke 10, verse 20. Jesus sends out the, set, the 70, the 70, two by two, uh, to heal, to cast out demons. They come back really excited that they could do all this. And, and Jesus says, uh, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you this authority. Verse 20, nevertheless... Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. It's not the exact same thing. He's not saying book of life, but it's the same idea. God has your name written in heaven. Jesus tells us this. Paul does the same thing. Philippians 4, verse 3 
Philippians 4. Right in the middle of talking about a, a conflict in the church, that Paul alludes to this same thing. He wants Euodia and Suntuke to get along. He urges his other uh, helpers uh, to help them to get along. Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There, there it is again. There's this list God has. Hebrews 12 is another example. I'm going to keep going because this is uh, an important concept. Hebrews 12, 23. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and then verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. There you have it, the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Firstborn is an interesting concept. In the Old Testament, the firstborn had certain legal privileges, right? And the idea here is that Jesus is the firstborn, right? Only begotten Son of God, we say every week. That's critical. And we share in Christ's privileges, those firstborn privileges, by union with him. God has this list in heaven of who shares those privileges, Jesus' name is at the very top, and we're all listed there only because he is. That's the idea. Uh, one more, Revelation 3. Two more, actually, two in Revelation. Revelation 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And then the last one I saved, the most famous one that we know, Revelation 20, verse 15. Right On the last day, when all people are judged, verse 15, Revelation 20, anyone not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. That's the one we're most aware of, I think, but notice how much there is in the Bible about this list, this idea of a list. Don't forget that when Jesus went to the cross, Jesus had this list in mind. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Right? Jesus knows his sheep. He has this list in the, these specific people. He, I think he's got a good memory, and he knows that list by heart. Of course, he's God, so he knows, right? We sang it earlier in And Can It Be. He bled for all his chosen race. Right? Jesus died for that list of people. Now, in one way, I'm playing a bit of a trick on you, and if you know your theology, you probably have seen the what about here. And that's my, the last point I have in the outline, the invisible church and the visible church, right? The list that Nehemiah has is a list of the visible church, the, the visible people of God. It's not the same as God's book of life, right? It's not like that list in Nehemiah, if Jesus had returned on that day, that was, those were the people who would be spared from hell. Right? There's a distinction here. Uh, and it's good for us to remember the book of life list, to emphasize the finality of the eternally decreed list. We read that in Ephesians 1, verse 4. 
I'll just turn there and read once again. It's a critical verse uh, to remember this idea. Uh, Jesus chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him, having predestined us to adoption as sons. So before the foundation of the world, this list was set, right? It's good for us to emphasize that. It's also good for us to do what Nehemiah did, and that is to write down what the list is now that we see and to feed and lead the people in front of you to know who God's people are. Uh, There's a great phrase John Calvin uses in one of his letters. He says, the church is called to make the invisible church visible. It's not just that there's this abstract theological distinction we have to keep in mind, which I think we do, but we have a calling as the people of God in in this time, in this place, in our lives, to make the church visible. Not just to say, well, I'm part of the invisible church because I know I believe. I don't know about those people all around me. They're the visible church. That's not the way to go about the the distinction. The way to go about it is, uh, I want to take this profession that I've made visibly in in this community, and I want to manifest, make visible the kingdom of God, uh, make uh, known the faith that I have, make it known by my works. That's kind of the James point, right? So visible and invisible church here. That's the idea. Uh, Now, providentially, uh, we just published a list, and it's on the back by the bulletin. I don't know if you saw it or not. I forgot to announce it this morning, but we've got a new directory out, right? Here's a list. Think of that. This is the kind of list that Nehemiah put together, right? And what these lists are doing, well, I, I, I guess I'll do it. I I didn't know if I wanted to do this or not. Everybody in the live stream, we're going to be right back, okay? Just take a moment. So, um, I want to just read the list of names. And to do that, I don't want to do that online. Right? Publish the list of the world. And that raises another point, that's of imperfect records, right? As I went through this directory this, just this morning, I, I panicked and I realized, oh man, I left out several names. So I, just, I said them just now, but I don't have all the new arrivals on here. So it's an imperfect record, right? But the idea is, we have this list like Nehemiah did, and every one is precious in God's sight. God puts, spills all this ink because he, he ascribes importance, dignity to each person. Not just the great leaders like Nehemiah. Uh, one point that is made there, I think, it's in Nehemiah 7, at the end, when it describes the giving, right? At the end, it, it summer totals up who gave how much. And the heads of the father's house gave a certain amount. And it turns out, verse 72, that which the rest of the people gave was just a little bit more than that. <laughs> so I think there's a little point in there that some commentators make the point anyway. What the people do, what the people give, not just the great leaders, the heads of houses, etc., matters to God. It matters. So that's why we put these lists together. That's why we want to, to gather God's people. 
The last point I'll make is, is the question, does Jesus know you? This is the evangelistic point you can consider. Uh, it's often said, and it's true, the main thing is not that we claim to know Jesus. The main thing is if Jesus actually knows you. And you can put that negatively, kind of as a warning, or you can put it very positively as an encouragement. And I want to do, mention both. We read from Matthew 7, you know the warning there, right? We, Lord, Lord, we did all these things for you. And what's Jesus going to say? Depart from me. I never knew you. Wow. Does Jesus know you? Of course, we know the way for Jesus to know us is for us to trust him, to believe that he's the one God sent. That's the negative warning. The positive encouragement, uh, I thought of verse, uh, Psalm 56. There's an Orthodox Jewish practice from Psalm 56, verse 8. Uh, I'll just read a couple of verses for context. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. All day they twist my words. They gather together. Shall they escape? And then verse 8. You number my wanderings. You put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? There's the book again. But now God's writing a book of every time you cry. And the Jews have this practice at funerals. They have, I forget what they're called, some kind of tiny little bottle. And anytime they, they tear up, at a funeral, they'll actually put that bottle right up to their eye and just rub that tear right into their bottle because of that verse. Kind of a funny practice. But the idea is God numbers our wanderings. Every time you've ever wept at some intense moment of anxiety, grief, despair, discouragement over whatever it is, God knows that. He knows those tears. Are they not in your book? God knows you. It's a precious truth. It's like in the magician's nephew when Diggory's mother is on her deathbed and Diggory stands before Aslan, despairing and crying, not realizing that Aslan knows all his grief and more. And he looks up into Aslan's face and Lewis says something like, it, it, Diggory thought maybe Aslan was sorrier for his mother than he was even. He could see the grief that Aslan had for his grief. And Aslan says these words. He says, my son, I know. Grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. People of God, Jesus Christ knows you. He knows every hurt, heartache, every joy, every trial that falls from above. God knows each of his people by name. He's precious to him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us as a tender, 
attentive, present Father. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to bear your image well. To know our own people. To be present and tender and loving with them. Forgive us where we fall short in this. Thank you for your grace and your compassion. Lord, we offer up our lives to you, for you have saved us. We thank you for writing our name before you in heaven, for knowing us intimately from before we were formed in our mother's womb. Thank you for giving us such a great Savior. We pray in his name, the name of the ever living Lord, and we now sing as he taught us to pray. and breaking precedent of it, I'm going to read a, a question and answer from the Catechism, Westminster. It's on adoption. Adoption is an act of the free grace of God in and for His only Son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those who are justified are received into the number of His children, have His name put upon them, the Spirit of His Son given to them, and are under His fatherly care and dispensation admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. Beautiful, precious words on adoption. We don't often put adoption together with the Lord's Supper, but we should. Adoption means you're part of the family when you weren't before. Parents feed their own children, not other children very often. Right? When you take this bread and this wine, you receive it from the Lord as his children, as his family. He is receiving you into the number of his children. I don't know about you, but I vividly remember back when I was about 10 years old, our family dinner table. I knew my spot. It faced the kitchen. I was just to the left of Dad, who sat at the head of the table, and he looked out at the window, out into the front yard, onto the road. I was received into the number. I, I know that memory. I was a hemicky. I was home. But in a way, none of us are truly home yet. It's true we already have spiritual life. We are justified. We are adopted by God now. But there is a receiving yet to happen, a homecoming, both at our death when we are absent from the body but gloriously present with the Lord, and at the wedding supper of the Lamb at the last day, when there's going to be a place card with your name on it, a plate, all the trimmings, laid by our Lord with you in mind. Think on that as you receive your portion now, for this is a foretaste of that feast to come. The gifts of God for the people of God. The body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray. 
Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.